About this time of the retreat, the question often occurs to many of us, <coughs> why am I here? <laughs> and the initial answer that appears in the mind may be uh, superficially correct, but often does not reveal the whole uh, set of conditions. It's clear that each one of us has made a decision some time ago that was in pursuit of fulfilling our aspiration uh, to be here and to practice, to awaken to some degree. And there's also the place. All of the people who have uh, been on staff and organizers and contributors to creating this place have made this place so that we could be here. And there's the dedicated staff that are in an ongoing way fulfilling their responsibilities, enabling us to realize our aspiration. And there's just an infinite, intricate web of conditions that are weaving this moment into being. And there's one condition that is often overlooked, but it is vitally important. And to reveal it, I need to tell a story. It's said that hundreds of thousands of eons ago, there was an ascetic, Sumedha, who had been practicing diligently for a long time, and his mind was ripe for full awakening. And one day, on his alms round into town to uh, get his daily uh, food, there was a big commotion in town, and he inquired as to what was going on, and he was told that the Buddha of that day, Dipankara Buddha, would be coming to town. And so he thought, well, that, that'd be an interesting thing. Let's check it out. So on the appointed day, he prepared a section of pathway for the Dipankara Buddha, and the Dipankara Buddha was coming with the retinue of students and devotees. And when, D D when Sumedha saw Dipankara Buddha, he, just through the powers of his, his own mind, saw that this is a pretty radiant, special being, and understood something about the quality of mind and just the, the uniqueness of the Buddha. And in his heart, he had the thought and the aspiration I'd like to be a Buddha someday in order to, like Dipankara Buddha, help others free themselves from suffering. Well, it so happened that Dipankara Buddha, with his capacity of mind, uh, checked out uh, Sumedha and realized that Sumedha had just made an aspiration to become a Buddha. And so he did a quick scan of his karmic records. and. Uh, <laughs> and realized that, indeed, the ascetic Sumedha did have the 
qualities or qualifications or the whatever's required to uh, to become a Buddha. And so he acknowledged to uh, Sumedha that indeed one day he would become a Buddha. And so having his uh, aspiration uh, affirmed, the ascetic Sumedha became a Bodhisattva. Hundreds of thousands of eons go by. Hundreds of thousands of lifetimes go by, during which time that being, that mind stream that was present and made that aspiration, undertook the challenges of becoming a Buddha, perfecting the paramis, the forces of purity, generosity, renunciation, energy, wisdom, equanimity, loving-kindness, patience, truthfulness. Putting himself in just extraordinary uh, situations where he would have to develop these qualities of mind until in his final lifetime as Prince Siddhartha, born 2,500 years ago, he fulfilled the conditions for becoming a Buddha and became the Buddha of our day, Gotama Buddha. After his awakening and becoming a Buddha, taught men, women, monks, nuns, royalty, and beggars for 45 years. And those teachings were heard, practiced, realized, and passed on for the last 2,500 years. And all of us have received teachings in that direct lineage of the teachings of the Buddha through our teachers in Burma and Thailand and elsewhere. And here we are. We are here because that ascetic, Sumedha, had a powerful intention. But it is a condition playing a big part in our lives that we rarely give a thought to, may not even know about. And yet it is a condition that's helping weave this moment in our life into being. This story points to uh, what I want to speak about tonight. And that is the power of intention. You can see that through the chore of becoming a Buddha, through the work of becoming a Buddha, that if one has a powerful intention, and a pure intention, and acts to fulfill it, and to fulfill that aspiration, that given enough time, patience, and persistence, nothing can stop you. For us, that means if we sincerely want to wake up, if we want to be free from suffering, if we give ourselves enough time, and we're persistent, and we're patient, there's no one can stop you. 
that is encouraging. <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> it's the long enough time part that's a little daunting. But nevertheless, no one can stop you. It's working with your own mind to make, to realize that. So, what I'm talking about is looking at all the conditions in our life. The past conditions of like being born as a human, the present conditions of having the time and resources and health and capacity to hear the teachings of the Buddha. Future conditions, the urgency to make best use of our time that imminent death imposes on us. It's just this infinite variety of conditions, impersonal, that are holding us and moving us along in this moment. And one of them is the intentions and the actions that we have taken in the past and continue to take in the present and will continue to take in the future. And these actions and these intentions are karma. Are karma. Karma is the law of moral causation. It is a natural law. It means that it is a law unto itself. There's no one making it happen, whether it's you or I or any other being. It's like the law of seeds, seed propagation. You know, if you plant a seed, an apple seed, you get an apple tree. If you plant an orange seed, you get an orange tree. And if you nurture that seed with the right conditions, it will grow a tree that will produce a flower, that will eventually produce a fruit like the seed. Same with weather. There's, there's just patterns of nature that have been observed over and over again that are articulated as the law of plant propagation, the law of gravity. No one created it. No one's making it happen. No one can stop it from happening. It's just the way it is. Well, so too, the mind and the unfolding of the mind has been observed carefully by those who devoted their lives to it. And the law of karma is an articulation of what they have observed. In its short form, in the most uh, succinct way of saying it, the law of karma states that actions taken rooted in greed, aversion, delusion produce an unpleasant fruit. Actions taken rooted in understanding, compassion, generosity produce both immediately and in the future a pleasant fruit. Powerful actions, powerful intention produce more powerful resu results. Weak intentions produce weak results. Every action, every thought, 
every time we speak, every time we move our body to act in some ways, is a karmic act, sure to produce and to condition many results. All that we experience in an ongoing way in life is in part conditioned by previous karmic actions. The theory or the understanding of the law of karma is the theory of cause and effect, of action and reaction. It is a natural law which has nothing to do with the idea of justice or reward and punishment. Every volitional action produces its effects or results. If a wholesome action produces pleasant effects and an unwholesome action produces unpleasant effects, it's not justice or reward or punishment that's handed out by anybody or any power sitting in judgment on that action or on your action, but it is a virtue of its own nature, its own law. What does this mean for us? It means that if we have a right understanding of the law of karma, it can be a powerful ally in our practice. If we have a confused or misunderstanding about the law of karma, it may undermine our efforts in practice. If we understand that wholesome intentions, thoughts, speech, actions, condition pleasant results, we can practice wholesomeness confidently and it will support our efforts in practice. We can adopt a wise attitude towards the emerging and ever-changing experience. We understand how this is happening, how to affect the future. We can also use the law of karma to order and regulate our life because we'll give thought to actions before we take them. We can pay attention to our motivation and where our thoughts are coming from, where our speech is coming from, where our actions are coming from. And when we have consideration for others, and we're careful not to harm ourselves or others, we can be sure the result will be pleasant. It is our choice. We have the freedom to choose, but it takes paying attention to see the space in the mind where that choice and decision is made. Now, the law of karma, or when a karma talk is given at a retreat, it often provokes a lot of questions and fear and anxiety about things we've done, probably. But <laughs> so I'm not asking you to believe it as dogma, but just allow it to be a possibility. I never accepted it as, con as dogma, <clears throat> but I've seen that as I've gone along in practice, 
And given some of my experiences, that I live and act as if the law of karma were true. <laughs> One powerful, but not con totally convincing experience. I, when I was a monk in Burma, I was in this one monastery, and I stayed in the monastery the whole time for many years. And eventually, Burmese people in the area knew of me, those who came to the monastery to practice or see other monks or nuns, knew me. And there were a couple of times where I'd be in my cottage and meditating, and I'd be a knock at the door, and I'd go to the door, and it'd be a whole family, a whole Burmese family there, mom and pop and the kids and the grandparents, the aunts and the uncles, and, and they would have gifts, you know, a set of robes and an umbrella and some sandals and this and maybe some food if it was before noon and, and they'd all come piling in, you know, and, and do their bows and da, da, da. And in the course of introducing themselves, they would acknowledge that they recognized me as their uh, spiritual teacher in past life and they wanted to come and re make, make, reconnect. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't affirm it or confirm it or deny it. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. It's just like, okay, I thought maybe they wanted a visa to the States or something. <laughs> but I was like, okay. You know, and accept the gifts and, and not to deny them, but not to uh, use it either. But as the Buddha said, the law of karma and the, the how karma happens, how it all happens, is one of the great imponderables. And that was one of my great imponderables. <laughs> the Buddha said, inconceivable is the beginning of this wandering on in birth and death. Not to be discovered is a first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. No beginning to be discovered. When we understand that actions and the intention behind those actions, thoughts, speech, and actions, is the cause or one of the conditions that produces the pleasant and unpleasant conditions in our life, then we pay attention. We pay very close attention to where, where we're coming from. We watch our motivation. We watch this intention. Because in anticipating results, we're going to make different choices. And so this intention is both the motivation for doing what we do, the rationale, the justification, which if it's rooted in generosity, kindness, understanding, you know, we act in a way that doesn't cause harm. The result is pleasant. And if it's rooted in greed, aversion, delusions, very self-centered, very limited concern, it springs from fear and acquisitiveness, and, well, the result is predictable. <clears throat> but the intention is not only the rationale for acting, it's that moment. It's being able to recognize the moment when we're about to act. Someone asked a question earlier today about that space in the mind just before he was about to say something unskillful. That's it. 
that is where our awareness, mindful awareness, can make a choice. If we're not aware of that space in the mind, the decision will be made by unconscious habit. If we have the steadiness of mind and the clarity of mind to see that impulse before speaking, we can choose to let our action, let our speech come from a place that's more wholesome. It's mindfulness, it's awareness that reveals this opportunity. What makes an intention so powerful as, for example, the intention of the ascetic Sumedha? What makes our intentions either powerful or insignificant? Because we speak and act and think a lot. And some things produce immediate and dramatic results, and some don't. One condition is the energy of the mind. If the mind is enlivened and awake and, and energetic and has uh, a dynamic quality to it, then the intention is more alive, there's more juice to it, there's more uh, power to it. If the intention is repeated frequently, if we reflect repeatedly on what it is we want to do, what it is we want to say, or we practice uh, kindness or generosity over and over and over again, the frequency of repetition strengthens the intention. A third condition, not so obvious, but very important to us here, is the purity of the mind. The more pure the mind is, meaning the less greed, hatred, and delusion there are in the mind, at the time of the intention, makes that intention that much more powerful. The pure mind, the mind that is not defiled, not contaminated by the hindrances, is very collected, is very calm. And it sees and recognizes the means to the end. And so, the intention is in alignment with the end that we desire. And so, the work we're doing here to purify our mind momentarily or for sustained periods of times to purify the mind of the defilements is very important work. Because in this opportunity or within the purity of the mind, we have the opportunity to plant very powerful karmic seeds. The seeds of renunciation. We're, we're facing the results of prior karma and at every opportunity we have the, or at every moment, at every experience, we have the opportunity to let go. And this intention to let go, occurring in the purity of your mind, 
it isn't just letting go in that moment. It's letting go and it's planting the understanding of the wisdom of letting go deeply in your mind. Not to be, not, it's not going to come out that easy. And that in time becomes more habitual. It becomes easier to access. In time, it becomes the default setting of the mind. Let go. Let go. Let go. And it's not easy to train the mind or to create, generate that habit in the mind, if you will, to let go. But through our efforts here, this is what we're doing. So important to plant this seed in the purity of our minds while on retreat. But karma is not the only condition giving rise to this moment, as we've already discussed. We can say that while karmic act, the intention, is the seed, we can't say that the result is in the seed. There's no apple or apple tree in an apple seed. Just like there is no result in the karmic seeds that we plant. But if a seed is lands in good soil and it is nurtured, an apple seed needing water and fertilizer and sun and, and keeping the weeds away, in time it will grow. So too with karmic seeds planted in the mind. If they land in fertile soil, the mind, and they're nurtured and cared for, they will eventually sprout, produce a flower, and produce a fruit. So we say that the potential is in the seed, is in the karmic seed. But the seed is not enough. We need other supportive conditions. And the other supportive conditions that are coming to our support now as we practice the Dharma here is all of the past Dharma practice we've done, for example. The Dharma practices we've done in the past, whether this lifetime or previous lifetimes, if you understand or believe in that, comes to support our efforts here now. There are material resources that are needed to support the ripening of karma. You know, many of our parents lived in the West or wherever they lived at a time when the Dharma was not so available. It just wasn't. They might have had plenty of good Dharma seeds, but the teachings of the Buddha were not generally readily accessible for many people in the world. But they are for us now. That's a result of our karma. And it supports the, the continuing fruition of our dharma karma, if you will. The soil in which our karmic seeds land is the mind. Your present moment mind is the soil in which seeds are laying, some of which are going to sprout. <clears throat> I 
I remember when I had done one retreat, and a couple years later I went on staff at the meditation center at, in Massachusetts at IMS. And the first year I was there on staff, there was a Burmese monk that came to the center for a week. And we were told about this monk, uh, that he was a Burmese monk, and he was quite elderly, and he'd done a lot of practice, and he'd spent, at one point in his life, he'd gone into a cave, and he stayed in a cave practicing alone for 16 years. At which time, or after which time, he realized, oh, his teacher had died. How did he know that? He came out, went to his monastery, and sure enough, his teacher had died. He took the responsibility to care for the body and to uh, find a new abbot for the monastery. Having done that, he went back into the cave for another 17 years, alone, practicing 24-7. <laughs> and then after 33 years in the cave, he came out. He was coming to America to teach us. <laughs> I didn't know what a monk was. Never seen a monk. Didn't, know, didn't have any idea. But when I saw Tongpulu Sayadaw come to the center, it, I think it was something like Sumedha seeing Dipangra Buddha. It's like, wow. But, it, you know, it's just a little short, skinny, wizened old guy wearing sunglasses because he'd been in a cave his whole life and <laughs> just, you know, sitting up there offering teachings. I mean, I mean how did I know? I, I didn't know anything about him except the story I'd heard and what he looked like. But, in my mind, I recognized something. I don't know what his accomplishment was. I mean, I just heard a story. But somehow I said in my mind, I want to be like that. I didn't want to wear sunglasses. <laughs> I didn't want to be in a cave. I don't know what it was, but I, I wanted to be, I wanted something that he had. And so I, I, I had this thought, I want to be a monk. And I thought I wanted to be a monk. And so I, you know, was kind of on the track to... But there were no resources. There was nothing coming to my support. I didn't have any Dharma understanding. I didn't have any money. I didn't know, where, I didn't know how to be a monk. I didn't know what you had to do. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't become a monk. It took eight years of more retreats and more understanding and maturing the heart, really cultivating, drawing the Dharma karma, if you will, to support my aspiration to become a monk. Nurturing the aspiration, when the time came, the opportunity was there, the thought arose in mind, I think I'll go be a monk. The aspiration was nurtured, the decision was made, and off I went and ordained as a monk. To struggle against conditions, not wholesome. But to nurture your aspiration, and wait for conditions to support it is the path of awakening. So I encourage you to um, recognize and really articulate to yourself what your aspiration is. Whether it's just to finish this retreat or, <laughs> or to do another one, if you wish, or a longer retreat or whatever. You know, maybe it's to be a monk or a nun or... Uh, why stop there? Let's go for it. Let's go for full enlightenment. I mean, if that's your aspiration, no one can stop you. And to nurture it, just to 
to do what you can to nurture it, even though it may seem impossible, unlikely, uh, too expensive, <laughs> whatever, and you've got too many obligations, conditions change. And if you've nurtured your aspiration and you've kept it in mind, when conditions support the ripening of that seed, it will happen. When we ask ourselves, why am I happy or unhappy with my life now? There are just, well, there's a lot of pundits that have an answer for you. <laughs> and whether it's scientific or economic or cultural or biological or genetic or whatever, they all have something to say. And so too the law of karma. What's clear from all of that is that whether you're happy or not is not accidental. It's not chaotic. Life is not just haphazard. It's not just random chance that what you're experiencing is what you're experiencing. There are causes and conditions and reasons, some explanations which seem right on, and some that are, well, maybe a little hokey. But the law of karma offers an understanding, not necessarily an explanation, but an understanding of a vastness of time and a, a complexity of conditions that, if we're honest with ourselves, we can sense. We don't have to confirm it, but we can sense that there's some legitimacy to it. How often, let me ask you, how often do you kind of understand or, or, or kind of acknowledge to yourself when, when things are going bad, you say, oh, it's my bad karma. You know, I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's pretty common actually in our culture, just karma, it's my karma. You know, I got this difficult thing, you know, somebody took my parking spot and bad karma. <laughs> <laughs> and everything, other things, much worse. That's, that's not so far out of our minds. But how often do you consider the blessings in your life, the goodness in your life, the things that you're grateful for, how often do you consider that as a result of good karma? Bad karma is easy. Good karma is a little more difficult. But we enjoy the, the benefits that we do. The health and the wealth and the opportunity to hear the Dharma and all that we have can be grateful for. Conditioned in part by previous wholesome karmic actions. The Buddha saw this, and when asked, why is it that some people die young, some people are sick, some people live to be old, some people are really intelligent, some people are free, some people are struggling, why is it? And the Buddha answered from his perspective, the karmic perspective, that, you know, if you are stingy and don't practice generosity, 
the karmic result of that is being poor or living in need and want. On the other hand, if you have practiced generosity and uh, a sharing, that the karmic result of that is living a life of abundance and wealth. Important for us is the understanding of what causes, what is the karmic act that leads to the understanding of liberation. Because it is understanding that liberates the mind. The Buddha said that the cause for wisdom or understanding is investigation. Those who look, those who want to know, those who ask the questions, those who are looking at their minds in order to inquire about suffering and the causes of suffering are those who find the result in liberation. So, there's a lesson there. There's a, there's a message there that it's not accidental. If, to awaken, to be free, to disentangle the heart, the heart-mind from suffering, the causes of suffering, it's not accidental. It's not poof, and, and I can't give it to you. It's because of the act of and the intention to understand and the act of looking and investigating and paying attention to how it's happening in this mind, which in time results in the understanding of liberation. During the Buddhist time, there are just many stories of uh, beings reaping their karmic fruit. And some of them are pretty phantasmagorical and some of them are interesting and some of them are pretty alarming. <laughs> There's one story that just points to the subtlety of understanding karma. And it's about Agantuka, who was a rich banker. Now, during the time of the Buddha, there was this, this banker, Agantuka, and he was wealthy just extraordinarily wealthy. But he went around in his life wearing rags in an old beat-up, uh, well, something like a rickshaw or a wagon or whatever it was that he rode in. And he ate kind of coarse, kind of bad food. And he was just, uh, well, he didn't enjoy his wealth. And so someone asked, and, and even when he died, you know, it took the king's men seven days to haul all of his treasures back to the, to, the ca uh, to the castle, the palace, to the king's storeroom. Well, that's how they did it in those days. The government just took it all. <laughs> Unlike these days. <laughs> Nevertheless, someone asked the Buddha, well, why, 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 what happened to Akantuka? Why, why, why did he not able to enjoy his wealth? And the Buddha explained that in a previous um, life, the being who later became Agantuka was a merchant. On his way to see the king, he met a Buddha, a Pachika Buddha, someone who was enlightened on their own, even though they weren't teaching. Met a Buddha, and out of devotion to or support for monastics or renunciates, he offered this Buddha 
a meal. Good karma. Practicing generosity, he offered a meal to this Buddha, went to see the king. Spent his time with the king. On the way back, he saw the, the, uh, the Pichika Buddha again, having eaten his meal, and he had some regret. He said, oh darn, I should have I saved that food and given it to my slaves or my servants, and I would have got some work out of them. So he had a negative, an unwholesome thought, kind of taking away the good intentions of his, karmic, his good karmic act. So, the karmic consequence of being generous to the, to the monk was he had a lot of wealth. The karmic result of having that second thought, <laughs> oh darn, I should have kept it from my own servants, is that he couldn't enjoy it. Single thought. Be careful what you think. <laughs> we are, through our own wisdom or ignorance, delusion, we are the architects of our future. We have this opportunity presented from past conditions coming into the, giving rise to this present moment. How we treat this moment plants the seeds that we will harvest in the future. How you reflect on your past wholesome actions is also a karmic act. How you reflect on your past unwholesome karmic actions is also a karmic act. What this means is that, well, let's face it, we've all done a lot of <clears throat> questionable things in the past. But now in our practice, Sometimes the painful past comes up for review. And we see, oh, you know, and we feel the shame, we feel the guilt, we feel the, you know, we feel regret, we feel remorse for speaking and acting and doing things that have caused pain to ourselves or others. That feeling of remorse is wholesome because we see the unskillfulness of that previous action. We can't take it away. That, that has gone by. That karmic act has gone by. But the further karmic act of regretting or having remorse and understanding this, this was not a skillful thing is a wholesome karmic act that serves to mitigate the unwholesome karmic act that we performed previously. So, the past is past. But we can change our relationship to it through awareness. We can come to understand what was unskillful. Let that guide us in the present and in the future not to make that mistake again or not to undertake that kind of unwholesome action again. And so, when we review the past and we see these painful places and how unskillful we acted, there's value to be extracted from that review. 
And the value is in understanding what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. And letting that serve to inform your decisions and your actions in the future. So it's not just wallowing around in the past and trying to fix it and just feeling guilty and, you know, it feels like that sometimes. But there's wisdom there to be uh, tasted and to be used in our life. When does karma, karmic acts, produce their result? Well, both in the immediate moment, if we're acting unskillfully, there's going to be some tension in the mind, in the body. There's going to be some unpleasantness. Maybe it's going to be spread around among others who are there at the time. On the other hand, if we're practicing some, or if we're acting in some wholesome way, we're practicing generosity or kindness or whatever, the mind is filled with lightness and joy and pleasantness and appreciation and gratitude, and we share that with others around us, the result is immediate, just right then. We get the pleasant or unpleasant result, both immediately and, since the seed has landed in the mind, it can produce similar result any time in the future. I think it was Menindra used to say, hey, if you want to be happy, practice generosity. Because when you think about it, it makes you happy. When you're actually practicing, it makes you happy. And every time you think about your practice of generosity, it makes you happy. You want to be happy? Think about it. Whatever wholesome acts we do, we can remember anytime we want. And it brings, right then, it brings that pleasant result, pleasant karmic result. It's not so mysterious. I mean, there are some dimensions of karma that's mysterious, but some of it's so obvious. We see it, we just need to be reminded of it and see it acting, see it playing out in our life and we can really get the benefit from it. By undertaking Dharma practices as we are here, we say that as we purify the mind, we set up a uh, kind of a force field in the mind that protects us. Or we say the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. How does this happen? Well, we have, we've, we've planted some unwholesome karmic seeds in the past. But they, too, need fertile soil for them to produce their results. But if we're in a wholesome Dharma field where our minds are pure and we're making effort to fulfill our aspiration, we don't give space in the mind. The mind is not ripe for unwholesome actions the worst of them, to, to take root and to, to produce a result. It's like, as uh, Geshe Kelsen Gyatso says, how is it 
that harmful results follow from harmful actions. It's by a force of the imprint placed on the mind that the potential to experience future suffering comes about. For example, a person who commits murder or other, some other crime plants a very strong negative impression in his or her mind. And that impression, or seed, carries with it the potential to place that mind in a state of extreme misery. On the other hand, if you are keeping your mind pure and you're associating with uh, good friends, good Dharma friends, that misery, that potential misery in the mind, doesn't have a chance to sprout. And so our Dharma practice calls forth our previous wholesome karmas to support us in this effort. Sure, we've all experienced unpleasantness today. Unpleasant body, unpleasant mind, unpleasant whatever. But it's workable. And so we can see that the quality of our life now is extraordinary. Just this week, just to have this opportunity to live in harmony with one another, to have this time to pay attention, to look, to, to be gentle with ourselves and others. It's just an extraordinary opportunity. Not accidental. You know, we're not making it happen now. It's a result, it's partly a result of our aspiration, a prior karma. <clears throat> Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda in a paraphrase this. He says, The ordinary man or woman sees events in life as a blessing or a curse. But the man or woman of power and wisdom sees every event as an opportunity to gain knowledge and freedom. It doesn't matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. If we use it to gain knowledge, we can use it to achieve freedom, to realize freedom. When we understand the law of karma in this way, we understand that unskillful actions cause pain, suffering, un, you know, just unpleasantness, then we can reflect prior to speaking, acting, thinking, and choose more wisely, more skillfully how to act. When we fear future karmic results, that's a wholesome state of mind. This is a wholesome fear. To anticipate consequences. Often we say, in, as Joseph was speaking last night, fear is a form of aversion. Most fear. But when it is fear of unwholesome karmic acts and the unpleasant results, that's wisdom. Because that understanding cautions us from being careless in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions. Knowing, too, that skillful actions lead to uh, come from wholesome 
roots lead to pleasant results, we can reflect on proactively, not just reactively, but proactively what seeds we want to plant in the mind. However, the key to successful karmic action is mindfulness, is awareness. Because it is awareness that acts as the inner mentor. It is awareness that tells us this is wholesome or this is unwholesome. It tells you what is pleasant, what is unpleasant, what is painful, what is not. And it tells us, it shows us what thoughts are skillful, what thoughts are unskillful. The greater the mindfulness, the greater the uh, continuity and the power of mindfulness, the more sensitive we become to pain or unwholesomeness. And in the beginning, we may be just really a kind of a, at a gross level understanding what causes pain and what not. But the further you go along, the more power your mindfulness has, the more sensitive you become to what causes harm, what the experience of harm is in yourself and in others. And as a result of that, the subtlety of watching or the subtlety of watching your motivations becomes that much more important. Because we see the littlest thing can be contaminated. Mindfulness also awakens what is called straightness of mind. It is a quality of mind that prevents you from deceiving yourself where you can no longer deceive yourself. Not because you choose not to, but because mindfulness sees through it. Every time. And you can't, you can't deny it. You might want to, but you can't. Because the mind sees. This is, this is the way it is. This is painful. This is not. So we're unable to lie to ourselves. We're unable to deceive ourselves. We're unable to uh, kind of rationalize uh, what's unwholesome? When I was a monk in uh, in Burma, the Burmese people are very devoted to monks. They're very supportive. They're very generous. They're just so... Um, they appreciate having uh, monks or monastics, monks and nuns, in their life as an example of what can be aspired, aspired to. And so if they get any whiff of your desire for anything, they'll be at your door offering it. Well, not having a fully purified mind, when I saw a set of robes that I thought was nicer than mine, I was like, hmm, that'd be nice. Or a bigger umbrella because it would kind of keep the rain off the robes in the monsoon season. Hmm, that'd be nice. Or a set of felt sandals. Hmm, that'd really be nice. But I knew, if I even expressed appreciation in front of a Burmese layperson, I'd have it the next day. And it just made me that, 
the continuity way it gets so sensitive. You see the slightest. I mean, it would be easy to say, "Well, that's a nice pair of slippers," without catching the intention. And I, I knew there the intention was coming from. <laughs> I knew there was attachment there, but it was. It might sound pretty benign, but in my mind, it wasn't. Mindfulness gets that sensitive, that powerful, that you cannot fool yourself. Mindfulness is a great protection. It just saves us from so much unwholesome karma. What we're doing here is can be seen from so many different levels, but the purifying the mind and the deepening understanding, the sensitizing of our understanding to what causes suffering and what causes uh, liberation is just paramount. Now, there's one more understanding of the law of karma that is counterintuitive, but it needs to be recognized. It said, it is of greater karmic consequence To do an unwholesome act, even if you don't know it's unwholesome, than to do an unwholesome act if you do know it's unwholesome. Okay, let me repeat this. Sometimes we say ignorance of the law. Hey, I didn't know it's I didn't know it's unwholesome. There, uh, it can't be that bad. But the Buddha said, no, actually, that's much worse. Why? Because when we do not know that something is unwholesome, we don't give it a second thought. We just do it with full, reckless abandon. We just say, yes, go for it. Mm -hmm. Right. No regret, no remorse, no second thoughts, fully invested, maybe over and over again. We don't know. That ignorance is causing greater energy, repetition, confusion in the mind. And it's just making that karma that much stronger. But if you know something is unskillful, it's not really that wholesome, you know, and you think about it and you reflect on it and you have a lot of second thoughts and you you hesitate and you doubt, you know, you know, but oh, uh, and you do it anyway. <laughs> all those thoughts, all those second thoughts, all that doubt, all that remorse, all that regret, all that wholesome guilt, so to speak, serves to mitigate them. So it's better to know than not. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's not easy to know and to act on what we know. This is a challenge to awaken, to sensitize ourselves to what is truly wholesome and unwholesome. So we feel. We feel how painful thoughts are, feelings are, regret is. And it serves to guide us in the present, planting the crop that we will harvest in the future. We have this lesson presented every moment from the past. Past karma presents this moment. And we have an opportunity every moment to plant the seed of our future results. Every moment. You can see why 
mindful awareness of this moment, just what is happening in its bare, unrationalized, unexplained, just this is the way it is, and having the capacity to respond with awareness rather than react out of habit is so important. This is where we're working. Moment by moment, developing awareness of this in order to understand more deeply and to harvest this fruit of liberation from understanding. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's time, time for uh, walking practice, and then at 9.15 we'll uh, meet here again. And for those of you who haven't taken the opportunity to rehearse with the Dharma, with the Metta Choir. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate